we meet again to continue with the introduction to prophecy. But specifically today we are looking at the introduction to the prophet Isaiah, the prophetic book of Isaiah. Let me bring you on board. Most of the prophets moved in an orbit of obscurity and anonymity. They did not project their personalities into the prophets that they proclaimed. Jeremiah and Hosea are the exceptions to this, which we will see when we study their books. Now, Isaiah gives us very little history concerning himself. There are a few scant references in his life, to his life and ministry. In Isaiah 1, verse 1, he gives the times in which his life was cast during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all the kings of Judah. In Isaiah 6, he records his personal call and commission. Now, the days in which Isaiah prophesied were not the darkest days in Judah internally. Uzziah and Hezekiah were enlightened rulers who sought to serve God, but the days were extremely dark because of the menace of the formidable kingdom of Assyria, which was coming from the north. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been carried away into captivity. Isaiah 36 to 39 records the historical section of the ministry of Isaiah during the crisis when the Assyrian host encompassed Jerusalem. Beyond these few personal sections, Isaiah stands in the shadow as he points to another who is coming, the one who is the light of the world. There are those who believe that Isaiah belonged to the royal family of David. This is supposition and certainly cannot be proven. Likewise, it has been stated that he is referred to in Hebrews 11 verse 37 as the one sown asunder. Whether or not this is true, the liberal critic has sown him asunder as the writer of the book. They have fabricated the ghastly theory that there are several Isaiahs. According to this theory, the book was produced by ghost writers whom they have labeled Deutero-Isaiah and Trito-Isaiah. Now, the book will not yield to being torn apart in this manner, for the New Testament quotes from all sections of the book and gives credit to one Isaiah, not many. The critics have cut up Isaiah like a railroad restaurant pie, but history presents only one Isaiah, not two, not three. The Dead Sea Scrolls and the studies of those scrolls show a great section of Isaiah still intact, and only one Isaiah is presented. It is also quite interesting that the Lord let a little shepherd boy reach down into a clay pot in Qumran by the Dead Sea and pick out a scroll that confounds even the critics. The Lord will take care of the critics. So the prophecy of Isaiah is strikingly similar to the organization of the entire Bible. This similarity can be seen in a number of ways, and that must tell us that that book is intact. When we compare 
the book of Isaiah and comparing the whole Bible, we see those similarities. Let me bring you on board, my friend. The Bible is a book, is a library that has 66 books. Isaiah is a book that has 66 chapters. In the Bible, the Old Testament has 39 books. In Isaiah, there are 39 chapters that deal with the law. In the Bible, the Old Testament has 39 books. In Isaiah, there are 39 chapters that deal with the law. And that is talking of the government of God. In the Bible, we have 27 books in the New Testament. And in Isaiah, we have 27 chapters dealing with the grace, the salvation of God. In the Bible, we have 27 books in the New Testament. And in Isaiah, we have 27 chapters dealing with the grace, the salvation of God. What a similarity. And it talks of the intact, how amazingly arranged it is. You see, there are 66 direct quotations from Isaiah in the New Testament. Some people have found 85 quotations and allusions to Isaiah in the New Testament. 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament have direct quotations. So you see, Isaiah is woven into the New Testament as a brightly colored thread is woven into a beautiful pattern. Isaiah is discernible and conspicuous in the New Testament. Isaiah is chiseled into the rock of the New Testament with the power, too, of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah is often used to force and enlarge upon the New Testament passages that speak of Christ. Now, the historic interlude, which is chapter 36 to chapter 39, leaves the high plateau of prophecy and drops down to the record of history. Even the form of language is different. It is couched in the form of prose rather than poetry. The third and last major division, which is chapter 40 to chapter 66, returns to the poetic form, but it is in contrast to the first major section. In the first, we had judgments and the righteous judgment of God. In the last, we have the grace of God, the suffering, the glory to follow. Here is grace and glory, the opening comfort sets the mood in temple. The opening words, comfort in Isaiah chapter 40, sets the mood and the temple. In the second section, that is what has caused the liberal critics to postulate the Deutero-Isaiah hypothesis. A change of subject matter does not necessitate a change of authorship. And it is interesting that for 2,000 years, there was not a word about a second Isaiah. John refers to this section as authored by Isaiah. John 1 verse 23, 
Our Lord Jesus likewise referred to this section as written by Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 verse 17 to verse 24. Philip used a chapter from this section to win the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts chapter 8. You see, there are numerous other references which confirm the authorship of Isaiah. So Isaiah prophesied many local events. When Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army, Isaiah made a daring prophecy. Isaiah 37 verse 33 we read, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. Also, see Isaiah's prophecy concerning the sickness of Hezekiah in chapter 38. That actually was fulfilled as a local prophecy. There are other prophecies which were not fulfilled in his lifetime, but today they stand fulfilled. For instance, his prophecies concerning the city of Babylon in Isaiah 13 verse 19 to verse 22. I will read that section. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will capper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels, and jackals in their pleasant places. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. Now, further fulfillments relative to Babylon are recorded in Isaiah 47. Now, excavations at Babylon have revealed the accuracy of these prophecies. More than 50 miles of the walls of Babylon have been excavated. The culture of this great civilization is still impressive, but it lies in dust and debris today, according to the written word of Isaiah. This is one of the many examples that would be given. Others will come before us in this study as we proceed through the book. The New Testament presents the Lord Jesus Christ as its theme. And by the same token, Isaiah presents the Lord Jesus Christ as his theme. Isaiah has been called the fifth evangelist. And the book of Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. Christ's virgin birth, his character, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming are all presented in Isaiah clearly and definitively. Now here is Dr. McGee's suggested outline to the prophetic book of Isaiah. Like I said, the book is mainly divided into three major parts, which earlier on I said you could simply make them two. According to Dr. McGee, there is the first part comprising chapter 1 
to chapter 35, and then second part comprising chapter 36 to chapter 39. Then the last part, chapter 40 to chapter 66. The first part is the judgment. It is actually written in poetic form, speaking of the revelation of the sovereign on the throne. The details to this first part is that there is a solemn call to the universe to come into the courtroom to hear God's charge against the nation of Israel. That is the subject of chapter 1. Then chapter 2 gives us the preview of the future of Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 3 presents the view of Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 4 gives us another preview of the future. Chapter 5 is the parable of the vineyard and the woes that are predicted for Israel. Chapter 6 is Isaiah's personal call and commission as a prophet. Then chapter 7 to chapter 10 is the prediction of local and far events. This one gives us hope of future in the coming child. Chapters 11 to 12 talks of the millennial kingdom. And chapters 13 to chapter 23 speak of the burdens surrounding nations. Well, these prophecies are largely fulfilled. The details of this particular section are the burden of Babylon, chapter 13 to 14, the burden of Moab, chapter 15 to 16, the burden of Damascus, chapter 17. The burden of the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, chapter 18. The burden of Egypt, chapters 19 to 20. The burden of Babylon, Edom, and Arabia, chapter 21. Chapter 21. Then the burden of the valley of vision, chapter 22. The burden of Tyre, chapter 23. You then have the kingdom process and the program by which the throne is established on the earth. It is a detail under this major division. It is chapters 24 all the way to chapter 34. Then chapter 35 is kingdom mandan, uh, the, the mandan blessings of the millennium. So that concludes the first section. The second section, which is a historic interlude, written not in poetry but in prose, is dealing with the prophetic picture of how God will deliver his people in the great tribulation. So chapter 36, we see King Hezekiah and the invasion of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Chapter 37, King Hezekiah's prayer and the destruction of the Assyrian hosts. Chapter 38, King Hezekiah's sickness, prayer, and healing. Chapter 39, King Hezekiah plays the fool. That concludes the second section. Now, the third section is salvation. Again, back to poetry. Chapters 40 to chapter 66. We are seeing the revelation of the Savior in the place of suffering. What are the details of this section? There is the comfort of Jehovah, which comes through the servant, chapter 40 to chapter 48. 
And then there is the salvation of Jehovah, which comes through the suffering servant, chapter 49 to chapter 57. The details of that is there is a redeemer of the whole world who is God's servant, chapter 49 to chapter 52, verse 12. Then the redemption wrought by the suffering servant who is God's sheep or lamb, Chapter 52, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. The results of the redemption wrought by the Redeemer, who is God's only Savior, chapter 54 to chapter 57. Under the third section, we have this detail as well. The glory of Jehovah which comes through the suffering servant, chapters 58 to chapter 66. It has a few details under it, mainly two. We see that in chapter 58 to chapter 59, sin hinders the manifestation of the glory of God. And then chapter 60 to chapter 66, Redeemer is coming to Zion. Nothing can hinder God's blessing, God's progress. He will judge sin. That's a wonderful book that we will be going into, particularly even in our next study as we will look into chapter 1. But in short, Isaiah is actually the pinnacle of prophets who has a twofold message of condemnation and consolation. He analyzes the sins of Judah and pronounces God's judgment on the nation. He broadens his scope to include judgment on the surrounding nations and moves to universal judgments followed by blessing. After a historical parenthesis concerning King Hezekiah, Isaiah consoles the people with a message of future salvation and restoration. Yahweh is the sovereign savior who will rescue his people. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please write to The Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for, and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me give you that address again. It's The Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa.